We're making our way slowly through this uh, book, and we've gotten up to verse 17. Hear the inerrant word of God. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. This is the crucifixion he's speaking of here. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Amen. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word, and I pray that as we bow our lives before it and we commit ourselves to submit and obey it, uh, Father, that uh, you would give us uh, your grace, not only to understand, but, Father, to rejoice in it and to live it out. I pray that you would anoint my lips and enable me to faithfully preach it, that you would quicken the word to our hearts by faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Last week we looked at uh, Peter's uh, taking of the healing of the lame man and sedueing that into a presentation of the gospel which was such an awesome passage. I uh, had a lot of fun preaching on that one. And we did begin to look at verses 17 and 18, but uh, I didn't get very far on that. So uh, let's uh, pick up at verse 17. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it, that's the crucifixion, in ignorance, as also did also your rulers. He says, you did it. He said, also your rulers. And we saw last week that uh, those who are part of a covenanted unit, whether it's the family, the church, or the state, uh, are in some sense implicated in the sins of that family unit. And uh, we won't get into all of the things that uh, we talked about there, but we saw it had profound implications for, you know, what kind of a church that we would join. Um, we saw that in Revelation, he said, come out from among them and be separate, lest you share in her sins and receive of her plagues. Uh, it had implications on uh, our prayer life, identificational prayer, where, sure, these guys did not actually do the crucifixion. They didn't authorize it. The leaders did, but they couldn't say, hey, don't blame me. It's the leader's fault. Uh, we still have an opportunity to say, yes, in some sense, we're identified with the sins of our nation and we can repent on behalf of our nation or in our family. We may not be able to change our family, but we can repent over the sins of our family and the sins uh, of the church. And we saw there were a number of other uh, implications. But one phrase I did not comment on was that phrase, you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Now, they were not ignorant of the fact that they had committed a sin uh, against a, a righteous man. I think Peter makes that quite clear earlier, and especially the leaders uh, had sinned. But what they were ignorant of is how serious of a crime that this was. They were ignorant of the scriptures that pointed forward to the first coming of the Messiah. They were ignorant that he was their Messiah. Uh, there were a number of things that they were ignorant of uh, with regard to a prophecy. They had been so immersed in the Zionistic teachings of the Pharisees that what they were looking for was a political Messiah who could deal with their political and their economic woes. In fact, they tried to force him to become king. You know, here's a guy who could provide everything we need, right? He's just fed us uh, with two loaves and 
well, no, five loaves and two fishes, but uh, they had not been expecting the kind of Messiah that they should have been expecting based on prophecy. And I think we too need to keep this in mind when we're dealing with people who hold to some rather bizarre doctrines. And there's a lot of bizarre doctrines out there uh, in the world. Sometimes that's all they've ever been taught. Uh, you know, as a 21-year-old, I was a dispensationalist in ignorance. Uh, I hadn't been taught anything different. I was an Arminian for many years in ignorance. And as soon as people showed me the scriptures, I said, whoa, how come I hadn't seen that before? And I embraced it. But the point is, we do need to have you know, mercy on people who have messed up theology. If Peter could have mercy on these guys and could have sympathy with these people uh, when they had crucified their Lord, I think we can have a little bit of sympathy and mercy on others as well. But I want you to notice something very interesting here. Despite the fact that they were ignorant, Peter holds them accountable for their sin all the way through this chapter. And I think that is a principle of life that we need to be aware of as well. Um, you know, pleading ignorance to uh, the law, you know, might get you some sympathy when you're breaking a speed limit, but you're still going to pay the fine, right? And pleading ignorance to uh, theology might get you some sympathy, but you're still going to have to pay the penalties, the bitter penalties, uh, for violating God's roadmap, as it were. The ignorance I had in my 20s and my 30s was very understandable, but I am still bearing the consequences of that ignorance uh, economically. Uh, I'm bearing it educationally and many other ways. My children uh, maybe would be even more advanced than they presently are if I had uh, grown up with the theology that the Lord finally brought me uh, to. I think they're way advanced of where I was at their age, but the point is, Ignorance never erases the consequences. Ignorance never erases the consequences, never. You can be ignorant of the laws of gravity, but if you uh, step off a tall building, you're still going to go splat, right? Uh, ignorance doesn't absolve you from the penalties. And you can be ignorant of theology, and you're still going to go splat spiritually on the ground with horrendous uh, consequences. Now, just as an example, I blame many of the evils that we see in America and the cultural realm on the church, and especially upon dispensationalism and pietism that has had such an escape. Not all of them have. Some of them, despite their theology, have been very involved in culture, but many of them have just said, why polish brass on a sinking ship? So what if it goes to hell? So what if there are problems out there? We're going to get raptured out anyway. And they have bailed out of society. And as a result, uh, uh, much problem has happened. Now, these are sincere, godly people. I don't think they intended for these evil consequences in culture. But what did Jesus say would happen if we fail to be salty, if we fail to be salt and light in culture? He says, we're good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trampled underfoot of men. And we have been trampled under the feet of humanism over the past few years, not because there aren't enough Christians in America to make a difference. It's because the theology of the church is so terrible. That's one of the reasons. And because also we're not holy. Uh, the church of Jesus Christ has had many, many problems. Uh, I have... Um, uh, known uh, Christians, even in seminary, 
who have said that they didn't really want to study a given topic because then they would be held responsible. Well, nonsense. That is a foolish notion. You're always responsible whether you're ignorant or whether you're not ignorant. You're going to bear the fruit of your ignorance. And that's one of the reasons I keep telling people, don't fear what you're going to discover in the Word. Study, study, study the Word so that you can avoid uh, some of the consequences our generation uh, has been uh, facing because of our ignorance. These uh, Jews had no excuse for not knowing. Scripture had prophesied the coming of a suffering Messiah over and over again. And anybody who had honestly studied the Scripture, I think, could have figured that out or at least could have avoided crucifying Jesus. Verse 18. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Now, it's not as if the prophecy of Christ uh, being a suffering Messiah was just found in one tiny little scripture in some obscure place in the Old Testament. From Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and all the way through, hundreds of different passages and all of the animal sacrifices were pointing forward to the fact that their coming Messiah would die in their place, would crush the head of Satan through his death, would give to us salvation and life. And uh, he would conquer sin and death. And God sovereignly fulfilled every one of the details of those prophecies. Now, this does bring up a question, and that is this. How can God hold people accountable for their sin if he prophesied the sin, fulfilled this crucifixion of Jesus. In fact, as we saw in chapter 2, he predestined every detail of that crucifixion down to the, the, the not parting of his garments and the gambling and the pulling out of his beard, all of those types of things he predestined. How can God hold people accountable when he is the one who has planned this all? And that's been something that's been a puzzle for many people. Now, I dealt with this question in much more detail, and so I'm not going to repeat what I said back then, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. And so if you're troubled over this doctrine, I encourage you to get the tape and to uh, study the materials on that. But it is important to remind ourselves of the fact that we must never pit God's sovereignty over against human responsibility. That's such a temptation, and that's why all through the book of Acts, I'm going to keep reminding of you, you of this as Acts keeps reminding you of this fact. Hyper-Calvinists... Uh, what they have frequently done is they have said, boy, it seems as if divine sovereignty and human responsibility are incompatible, and so they ditch human responsibility. And there are Arminians who say, boy, it seems as if these are incompatible, and so they ditch divine sovereignty. But over and over again in the Scripture, you see, no, they're not incompatible. They're often in the same verse together. God sovereignly predestines all things. He is in control of all things, and yet we are responsible for our own actions. We cannot, uh, we cannot uh, uh, pit the one against the other. Now, based on the conviction that these people wanted to do this God-ordained sin of the crucifixion, that they were responsible for it, that they freely entered into it, it was their sin, it was not God's sin. Remember, God never tempts us to sin, and we saw how you can reconcile that uh, in the illustrations that we gave. Based on that, he says in verse 19, Repent, therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, the first word repent means a change of mind. 
The second word convert literally means to turn back or to turn around. And so in those two words, you see that there is both the mind that is changed and the will that is changed. Both our mind and our actions are involved in genuine repentance. And I want you to notice that this repentance precedes forgiveness of sins. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, He who covers his sins shall not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. So there's no prosperity, there's no refreshing to those who cover their sins, but those who confess and forsake the sins, yeah, they've got all kinds of mercies that God brings into their lives. Now, there's a very common mistake that's been made all through the 19th and the 20th centuries on, on this question, and it's this. If we are justified by faith alone, and that's true, right? We are justified by faith alone. If we're justified by faith alone, they therefore conclude repentance is not necessary for salvation. And that's an absolutely false conclusion. Uh, many of these people say, yeah, you just believe that he is your savior. You can continue to live like the devil and you're still going to be saved. In fact, some of them say you're actually preaching another gospel. You're preaching heresy if you say that a person must repent. And if you point out to them, now that, that seems a little crazy because hundred, over a hundred times the Bible calls us to repentance. And without repentance, there is no remission of sins. And they, oh, that was for the Jews. That's not for the Gentiles. And you scratch your head a little bit and you say, well, why then did Paul preach repentance to the Gentiles? In Acts 26, verse 20, uh, it says that he declared to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. And their response is, well, that was, you know, just for gaining extra rewards in heaven, that's optional, but he's not saying that it's repentance for salvation. And so you quote to them Acts 11, verse 18, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Yes, it does have to do with salvation. He's saying their repentance unto life. And their response is, well, uh, that was a statement not made by God, but made by a church council, and church councils can make mistakes. And so you respond with another scripture, and you go back and forth, and after a while you begin to wonder, you know, these guys really aren't interested in seeing what the scripture has to say. They've got an agenda that they are determined, bound and determined, they're going to press. Now, sometimes the reason for that is that people are insecure. They don't want to give up their neat system. But I think many times it's a much more sinister reason why people fight against this doctrine. I knew an old man who was in, uh, he was one of the sound uh, people at a church that uh, we attended when my parents for two years were uh, in Canada. My dad was uh, back from Ethiopia and had real health problems. And, but he continued to speak. And I remember this man just vociferously disagreeing with my dad when my dad preached on repentance like this. And he was saying, no, we're not under law. We're under grace. We don't have to repent. The law has nothing to do with the Christian. And I remember as a child thinking, man, that is, this is a little bit bizarre. What's this guy up to? It was not until years later that I found out this guy had been sexually abusing children in that church for quite some time. No wonder he wanted a theology with no repentance uh, in this uh, hyper uh, dispensationalism. Usually there is a personal reason when people are vigorously opposed to the law or are vigorously opposed to repentance. 
And the Bible is very clear. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness of sins. In this verse here, he says, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Now, this puzzled people at the time of the Reformation, uh, and, and they still said, okay, how can we be justified by faith alone if repentance is absolutely necessary? And the Reformers, Luther and Calvin and Beza and all the others, responded that we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. In other words, faith is always connected to repentance. You cannot separate them. And if you have a supposed faith that is not connected to repentance and never produces any good works in your life after you are saved, then it's not a saving faith. It's not a genuine faith. Um, Faith and repentance are two sides of one coin. You cannot separate them. Where you find one, you're always going to find the other. And even though you can distinguish the sides of a coin, you cannot separate them. And so uh, what we are... We are justified by faith, but anywhere that faith is, there's going to be genuine repentance. And so repentance does not justify us. Repentance is turning away from the world, the flesh, and the devil. So you're not saved. You still have all those sins to deal with, right? You've turned from them. What is it that receives salvation? It's faith that lays hold of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, casts our sins upon him, and believes that his provision is sufficient to save us. But can you ever believe? Can you ever turn to God if you haven't turned from something? No, those are two sides of one coin. So hopefully, that'll help you to reconcile that in in your mind. Now, I love the Greek word for the words blotted out means that those sins are absolutely obliterated. Um, It's a very strong word. It means either to be erased or to be destroyed. And so once a person is converted, all of his sins, past, present, and future, are wiped clean from the slate so that when you go into God's courtroom, there aren't any sins on that blackboard, as it were, that they can uh, uh, hold against you. They're taken away. And this is such a glorious, glorious promise. It means that we don't have to be in fear and dread that we'll commit uh, what Roman Catholics speak of as a mortal sin, you know, that makes us lose our salvation. No. Once you are saved, you will never again have to face the wrath of that court. Now you're going to be dealing with God as a father. And he, fathers deal with sins too, right? But they don't kick you out of the family. They, they discipline you. But as far as a courtroom, you're never going to have to face those again. They've wiped, been wiped clean. And then the next three phrases show what flows from this call to repentance and the forgiveness that God gives to us. They're wonderful, wonderful words that I would love to dive into, but I can't because there's so much controversy over these verses. Until we understand them, I don't think we can really apply them. And there are many people who believe that these verses don't even apply to those first century Jews. They apply at the second coming uh, of the Lord. And so how can I apply them until I can demonstrate that really they are uh, things that are relevant to what we're going through? And keep in mind, I'm going to give you three views. Let me read the scripture first. Verse 19, so that uh, the second clause there. So the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So when do the uh, times of refreshing occur? 
Or what about the times of restoration? Are they different things or are they the same? Do they occur at different times? Are they overlapping? And I want you to keep in mind as I go through these that um, there are godly people who hold to all three different views on this. And so I'm not wanting to denigrate them, but before you can apply it, you really do have to distinguish and understand uh, the, the principles involved here. Okay, the first group, and I was once a, a premillennialist, premills say that it will be future to us, but a thousand years before the end of time. Now, see if, this, if I can get this thing to work here. There is the end of time on their view, but on the pre-mill view, Christ comes pre, in other words, before the millennium, right over here. And uh, uh, most pre-mills nowadays have a secret rapture before this thing is supposed to represent, you know, the tribulation, great big uh, lightning storm, you know, hitting. But there is a secret rapture here, then there's seven years of tribulation, and then they say that the Jews will see Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven, they will repent, then there will be a restoration instantly of all things, that's verse 21, and then there will be times of refreshing for that whole uh, thousand-year period right over there. There are some historic pre-mills that don't see the secret rapture. They see uh, just one uh, second coming there, uh, but otherwise it would all be the same. Okay, many awe-mills, awe-mill means they don't believe in a literal millennium, many awe-mills also say that it will be at the second coming, but like us post-mills, they see the second coming as happening at the end of history, not a thousand years before the end of history. Now, unfortunately, they see the times of restoration of all things as well as the times of refreshing as occurring in eternity, not as occurring in history. Okay, that's what would distinguish them. Uh, they, too, see uh, the restoration as instantaneous and the times of refreshing as lasting for a long time, not a thousand years, but all of eternity. Okay, let me give you one more chart. This one is uh, post-millennialism, and uh, this is the view that um, Charles Spurgeon and uh, Jonathan Edwards and so many others in the past have held to. Now, what we do is we agree with pre-mills that the times of refreshing and restoration have to be in history. Pre-mills and post-mills both say it has to be in history, and I think the word times itself definitely indicates it's in connection with history. Uh, we believe that the second coming is at the end of history up there, and um, uh, the times are refreshing a long period in between. Now, let me go back to amillennialism first and give you some reasons why I believe that the amill explanation is not adequate. Uh, they do get some uh, of the passage right, I think, as premillennialism uh, gets some of the passage right. I've got eight reasons in my footnotes here as to why they're wrong. I'm only going to give you two right now. And the first one, I want you to notice in both verse 19 and in verse 21 that it uses the word times, plural. Not the time, not a time, not even time singular, but times, plural. And I think that's very important. Now, if you have an ESV translation, unfortunately, in verse 21, they put that as a singular. But you look it up in the Greek, it's plural. Most versions have it as plural. And I don't even understand why they translated it plural in verse 19 and then singular in verse 20, unless it was just trying to fit it into, uh, into uh, their, their theology. 
but uh, on the Amel view, the restoration of all things in verse 21 happens instantaneously at the second coming, right at the end of time. It's not progressively. And if you look at the 159 times that the words for times occurs, not one of them recurs to just one event. Not one of them occurs to eternity. It's always something in history. And let me give you some examples here. 1 Thessalonians 5.1 But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Times and seasons are put in parallel, and they clearly refer to history, okay? not to eternity. Acts 1.7 Jesus said, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Now, with regard to the word kairoi, in verse 19, Luke 21, 24 says, Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So it's speaking of a long process of history on everybody's interpretation there. Long process of history. And so the language that he is using in Acts chapter 3 is indicating Peter is talking about history, not eternity. Now, some people might think they can escape the force of that argument by saying, okay, it's in history, but it's the last day of history and it's going to be done all at once. Well, if he had used the singular time, then that would, that would fly. But because he uses times, that means a whole series of times of events. It's, it's got to be over a long period of history, so that just will not fly. So circle both of those words, uh, the times in verse 19, times in verse 21. Second, look at verse 19. The times of refreshing in verse 19 aren't in the presence of the Lord, as you would expect if the all-mills are right, because you're going to be caught up into heaven there. It's not in the presence of the Lord, but from the presence of the Lord. That uh, preposition from indicates that this refreshing is coming from heaven to the earth, and the refreshment is being experienced on the earth. In other words, that too is an indication that this is in history rather than uh, in eternity. And there are other uh, reasons why I don't think the on-mill view is right. Uh, I won't deal with those right now. But let's look at the pre-mill chart here. The pre-mills agree that this glorious time of refreshing, restoration of all things has to be in history. And they too will say the word times means history. I mean, how could you get around that? And secondly, from the presence of the Lord indicates it's from heaven to the earth during history. But uh, pre-mills believe that verse 19 occurs after the second coming and uh, only lasts a thousand years, that thousand-year period, to, to the end of history. And then verse 21, instantaneously on the last uh, day of history. There is a certain plausibility, I think, to their interpretation. If verse 19 is talking about national repentance and national blessing, as they insist, then they say it's very significant that verse 20 talks about the second coming. And so they say there's premillennialism right there for you. <clears throat> now, not everybody believes uh, that verse 20 is talking about the second coming. I've got a number of commentaries that uh, think that it's his, uh, a mystical coming of Christ in blessing. Ken Gentry holds to that. Um, I've got a couple of other commentaries that hold to that. But I happen to agree with the Amils and with the premillennialists that it is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems a little bit strained to take it the other way, even though it is a possible uh, interpretation. So I'm just going to grant the premills on that. It's the second coming. The problem is 
they see those things as all occurring at the same time. And then in verse 21, they take Christ's being in heaven as simply waiting for the refreshing, waiting for the restoration. In other words, while Jesus is in heaven right now, he doesn't do any work of restoration. There is zero connection between his being in heaven and the restoration or the times of refreshing that are going to come. It's just sequentially. One comes after the other. What he's doing is he's waiting for permission from the Father to finally bring those times of refreshing. Now, even with that, I think there's still a certain plausibility to what they are saying. And so let me explain where I believe uh, the pre-mill interpretation fails at a number of points, including uh, some of these uh, are overlaps with uh, failures that the awmills have. First of all, there is a cause and effect order in verses 19 through 20 uh, that is uh, quite different from the order that pre-mills give, or even that awmills give for that matter. Each time you see the word that appear, it shows a result of the previous clause. It's, it's like a chain of cause and effect relationships where one event necessarily follows the other event. So just look at the chart up here. This is the whole verse written out. Repent, therefore, and be converted. What's the result of this repenting and being converted? That your sins may be blotted out. What's the result of your sins being blotted out? So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What's the result of this long period of time? Remember, times is extended. What's the result of those times of refreshing? The result is so that he may send Jesus Christ. Okay, so it's, it's a series of cause and events. The first phrase gives the foundation of everything else. Now, just for the sake of argument, let's grant that the pre-mills are right and that this is exclusively a verse that's applying to national repentance and national blessing in the future. I don't agree with them on that. I think it includes that, but I think it includes what the first century people who were repenting were uh, doing as well. But let's assume that they're right on that. That means that Israel has to repent before the Lord comes back, not after the second coming. Okay, can you see that? On the order there, the, the order is repentance, sins being blotted out, times of refreshing. Again, this is a long period of time of refreshing. And then Jesus Christ is sent. Now, that's exactly the reverse of the way that uh, premillennialists uh, have that. In fact, if you'll put up the next uh, chart, Joel. Uh, all premills of every stripe believe that there is going to be seven years of tribulation right up here, seven years of tribulation. Then there's going to be the second coming right here where the Jews will see him coming on the clouds of heaven. Then God will restore all things. And then there's going to be these times of refreshing. Well, that's the exact opposite of what verses 19 through 20 say is going to happen. Uh, verses 19 through 20 says uh, that um, there's going to be times of refreshing after the conversion, right? So conversion, times of refreshing, and then the second coming of the Lord. So they reverse the order of the conversion of the Jews in the second coming. They also reverse the order of the, of the uh, times of refreshing and, and the second coming. Now, their response, and everybody's got a response, right? <laughs> I'm not going to go through absolutely all of the responses uh, because there are variations that uh, people have, but their response is that verse 21 clearly puts the times of restoration after the second coming 
And so, therefore, even if it seems like verses 19 through 20 overthrows premillennialism, it really doesn't, because you need to interpret verses 19 through 20 in light of verse 21. So let's look at verse 21, and I have to agree. Verse 21 is a difficult verse for post-mills, for pre-mills, and for all-mills, because there's an ambiguity in one word in the Greek there, and it's the word translated here, until. It could go in two directions. It could go in a uh, pre-mill direction, it could go in a post-mill direction. Uh, let me read verse 21 for you. Whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Now the phrase until the times could be interpreted two ways, and it really depends on the force that you see in that word until. Uh, if you think the word until implies a cause and effect relationship between Jesus being in heaven and the restoration of all things as I do, in other words, his being in heaven is what causes this restoration, then in your mind you will be thinking, uh, adding a word in there, that you believe the word is fulfilled until the times are fulfilled. If you see if you believe that there is no cause and effect relationship between Jesus being in heaven and the times of restoration, then all you're going to see is one sequentially follows the other. Uh, then you're going to add the words have started until the times have started. Now, literal versions like the New King James, they just leave it the way the text says it, leave the interpretation up to you. But there are many versions that go to one direction or the other. And you'll say, oh, I see it in this version. Or they'll see the pre-mill uh, view in the other version. This one kind of leaves it up to you. So if you put up the next uh, overhead, uh, Joel, here's the two ways that you will find this translated. First way, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things are fulfilled or whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things has begun, or one, one translation, has arrived, until it has arrived. Uh, Premillennialist Mr. Woods uh, wor words it this way. It could mean either till these times be exhausted or till they arrive. Premills and amills take it as till the times arrive until they start. Now, it's definitely a possibility. In fact, there are post-millennialists who hold to that interpretation. So this doesn't ditch post-millennialism at all. Uh, they still have an enormous problem on both the term times uh, as well as on uh, pre-mills believing that really, not literally, all things are fulfilled at... Uh, once you put that other chart up there? Literally, not all things are fulfilled at the second coming, because premillennialists believe that after this supposed restoration of all things, right at the beginning, right here, there's still sin, there's still death, there's still suffering during this period over here. Uh, they believe that there will continue to be war. It'll be at the end of that thousand years. There'll continue to be rebellion. Uh, they agree that there will still be enemies residing, particularly amongst Gog and Magog. And on their instantaneous fulfillment view, it does not fit. Now, if it was at the end of history, it would, like with the Amils. They tend to restrict the restoration of all things to the fact that he's going to restore long life, health, set Christ on an earthly throne, bring peace, bring prosperity. And while those things are great, they're not. They don't include all the things that other passages that are parallel that interpret that Old Testament prophecy include. 
And the point is that we're not going to know which of those two possible translations to take until we know what is being restored. So let me uh, have this chart up here again, create pre-mills. think all things, just to remind you again, are going to be restored right there, not gradually over time. It's going to be instantaneous. And they believe that for a thousand years there's going to be times of refreshing up in there. That's uh, verse 19. Similarly, Amils think that all things will be instantly restored right here, followed by long time, well, forever, of times of refreshing. And in our chart, we agree with amillennialists that the all things has to include what they include here at the end of time. It has to include that. We also agree with premillennialists that it has to include the things that they say are going to be happening in, in history. But unlike the amillennialists who think it's going to start here, we think it's going to end there. Okay? It includes those things, but it ends there. There are so many scriptures that indicate that at the resurrection and the enthronement of Jesus, um, this restoration process began. That was Peter's interpretation in Acts 2, 34 through 35. He quotes the Father as saying, Sit at my right hand till I make all your enemies your footstool. And then he proceeds to speak about Christ's restorative work by sending his Spirit. Ephesians 1.10 That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, and that's a phrase, fullness of times is a phrase that's from Christ's first coming all the way through to his second coming at the end of history. Why? Because Galatians says Jesus came in the fullness of the times. So we're living in the fullness of times. And even uh, our millennialist uh, William Hendrickson was forced to agree with that. He said in his commentary, in the present case, that's Ephesians 1.10, the reference is to the entire New Testament era, particularly to the period which began with Christ's resurrection and coronation. It will not end until the Lord, upon his glorious return, will have pronounced and executed judgment. And yet, listen to what Paul says occurs during that whole time span. In Ephesians 1.10, he says that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. He says that's going to happen in history, not in eternity. And then he proceeds in that chapter to explain what are these all things that are gathered together in Christ that are placed beneath his feet. And he includes individuals, principalities, powers, might, dominion, the very creation. So the point is, it includes what the amillennialists say or at the end of history. It includes everything the premillennialists has, but it includes a whole lot more. And to make a 2,000-year gap between the repentance of these Jews that Peter was preaching to and the times of refreshing and the times of restoration just doesn't make any sense. Hey, guys, if you repent of your sins, 2,000 years from now, he's going to be sending times of refreshing and restore all things. Uh, that just didn't make any sense to me. It seems to me clear that their response to Peter's message results in their experiencing times of refreshing. And you find all kinds of scriptures that parallel this experience in believers' lives. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have begun new. God begins the refreshing and restoration individually. And as more and more individuals become Christians... 
He expands the refreshing and restoration corporately and culturally. And as nations become Christians, he, ex he expands that nationally. And 1 Corinthians 15 says, Jesus must continue to reign at the right hand of the Father until all enemies are put beneath his feet. Let me read those for, for you. Verses 25 through 27 of 1 Corinthians 15. For he must reign till he has put all things under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Now let me stop there for a moment. Think about that. If the last enemy that's going to be destroyed by Jesus is death, that means every other enemy is destroyed before that last enemy, right? Well, he goes on in the chapter to indicate exactly when that death is going to be destroyed. It's going to be at the second coming when we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air in the twinkling of an eye. And he says, then will be brought to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. So death is destroyed before he even reaches the earth, before he's even come to the earth, as he's coming in the sky. That's the last enemy. Every other enemy has to be destroyed before then. Let me keep reading. He says, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. He's saying God's the only exception, God the Father. Everybody else, all of creation has been placed under Jesus. Isn't that what Jesus said? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He doesn't have to wait for the future. And so back to Acts 3, verse 21 it seems to me as if it is unwarranted, even though there are good interpreters who hold to this, it's unwarranted to make Christ being in heaven utterly unrelated to his restorative work. 1 Corinthians 15 makes his restorative work all flow from heaven. In fact, he can't even leave heaven until the restorative work is completely finished. A second, it seems unwarranted to make the until mean until the beginning of the restoration rather than until the end of the restoration. And third, it seems unwarranted to exclude anything in this universe from the all things that Peter spoke about. All things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. He's saying all of prophecy going to be fulfilled. And here is a chart. Uh, that kind of summarizes which issues each of the viewpoints has going for them and uh, which ones they fail on. Obviously, from my perspective, we get a check mark on every one, right? <laughs> hey, I'm making the chart. You know, I can put the check marks where I want. So um, we've got all 10 points, and you can see that some of the other ones do get check marks, uh, a couple anyway, uh, on those. <laughs> Aren't I gracious, you know, giving them a couple? Now, this may seem like overkill to you, and maybe it is overkill, but I don't want you to be robbed of the realization that Christ's refreshing work and his restoring work has already begun. It's available to you. You don't have to wait to the second coming. The Christian's life should be a life rich joy, satisfaction, victory, comfort in the gospel. We should be experiencing victory and restoration of life. Now, he's not talking about refreshing. In fact, interestingly, the Greek word for refreshing implies that. The Greek word for refreshing implies that the person is weak and he's dry and he needs to be revived or he needs to be refreshed depending on the translation that you have there. So, that means there's problems, right? 
And if it's times of refreshing, that means there's going to be problems during those times as well. It's not perfection that he's talking about. And if there's times of restoration, and restoration has to go throughout those times, it means that the world, the flesh, and the devil is busy seeking to destroy the things that God is trying to do. But praise God, he has come to destroy the works of the devil. That's the point. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He has come that we might have life, that we might have it more abundantly. And he has come to give us a world-conquering faith and a world-forsaking repentance. And so if you're not experiencing this refreshment, if you're not experiencing the restoration, your life just feels like it's blown all to smithereens and you can't seem to get those bricks and mortar all put back together again, don't doubt Christ's provision. He says he has already blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ in Ephesians 1, doesn't he? We've got it. He's given to us, so don't doubt him. Rather, what we ought to doubt is, are there sins I have yet to repent of? Or the flip side, am I lacking the faith that lays claim to those things that God has given to us uh, in the heavenlies? See, the only conditions that he holds out in verse 19 are repent, turn, which itself implies faith, have your sins cleansed so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, to me, this is so cool. I wish I could have developed more, the positive side of this, uh, rather than having to go through all of the... Uh, all, all of the controversy here. But the point is, you don't feel like you have to wait for anything. You have the resources in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're feeling dry and dusty as a desert, cry out to Jesus. Jesus said, He who believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's saying, you're going to have so much provision, it's not just going to be enough for you. It's going to be flowing out and bringing joy and happiness and, and peace and, and uh, God's grace into the lives of other people. You need to be not just always receiving. You need to be receiving so much, you're overflowing into the lives of others. And again, remember, this does not mean you're not going to have troubles. That's what people so many times think. Hey, he's promised peace. How come I have trouble? No, he's not promising that. In fact, Psalm 46 is a passage that's a messianic passage that promises us we're going to have troubles and tribulations so great it's going to feel like the mountains are shaking and being tossed into the midst of the sea. It's going to feel like the, the waves are roaring and are troubled. And yet he says... God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. He, he, he says that, uh, that the city of God, the church, has a river whose streams make glad the city of God. His presence is with us. He that God is a God who cannot lie, and if he has promised this refreshment, if he has promised this restoration, I'm going to bank on it, and I'm going to act upon it. He has provided for you not only in the heavenlies, but he's provided the Holy Spirit. He's provided spiritual giftings and the body out here that can minister in your life. He's provided pastors. He's provided faith. He has provided for you. What other things has he provided? He's provided everything we need for life and godliness, right? <laughs> everything that we need. So do not be looking to broken cisterns that simply cannot satisfy. So many people go to the world 
and try to gain from the world what Christ has already said you've got right here in your front porch. You don't need to be hiking off elsewhere. Psalm 46 ends with these words. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. May he be your refuge. May he be your refresher. May he be the restorer of the years that the locusts have eaten in your life because Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. May it be so. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your promise of refreshment and restoration. Forgive us for those times when we have just been so hard-hearted, we've refused to bow our neck, we've refused uh, to repent and by faith look to you. We've tried our own way and we have failed. Uh, we've looked to our own strength and we have failed. And Father, you could, you've told us that we would fail even before we tried. But Father, help us to look to the Lord Jesus Christ and to receive from you from your throne, those times of refreshing. May each person here go from this place determined to seek after you and to lay claim to the resources that we have in Christ Jesus, to not grow weary in do doing good, knowing that we will receive a harvest if we do not faint. Uh, Father, I just ask for your presence to be with us, your faith and the, the, the blessings that Jesus has already purchased for us in the heavenlies to be poured out richly in each life here. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.